I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 4 in your copy of God's Word as we resume our study of Luke's Gospel this Lord's Day. And as you turn there, just a, a word of thanks to Pastor Nick and our musicians and our Advent choir. Uh, it is no small thing uh, to prepare to come during this time of year to, to bless us in the way they blessed us today and last Lord's Day. And I'm very thankful for that uh, as we've had uh, this choir during this season where we celebrate the, the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. Uh, we're already making plans for a choir when we uh, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus uh, during our celebration of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And so if you'd like to, to be a part of that, have that in mind. Uh, it'll just uh, be a short time before we'll start making those preparations. As again, it takes a great deal of work uh, for these choirs. And I, I'm very thankful uh, for the way they bless us and, and help us that we might worship and, and learn new songs like the one that we just learned this morning. Songs that uh, remind us of this time of year, this, this Advent season, when we, we look back on the things that have taken place as we prepare and as we look ahead to what will come. And in that effort, uh, the Gospel of Luke is helpful to us uh, because what we find here is that Luke, this uh, Gentile doctor, he has put together an, an orderly account uh, that we might learn, that we might be strengthened in our faith. And, and in his account today, we come to uh, this section that he puts fairly early uh, in his account of the ministry of Jesus, an event that likely took place later. It appears in two other Gospels at a later point, but uh, he puts it here for a reason. He, he is helping us to see in this account where Jesus is rejected, how Jesus indeed is the Messiah who's come, who has fulfilled uh, the words of the prophets. Here specifically, the words of the prophet Isaiah. And in showing us this, Luke is helping us to see indeed who Christ is, what Christ faced, that we might put our faith wholly in him. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 4 this morning, verses 14 through 30, and out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand as I read today's passage for us. Remembering that this is written by Luke under the inspiration of the Spirit. And this is what Luke writes. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, 
Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Passing through their midst, he went away. You would pray with me. Father, as we come to this passage in your word that reminds us that our Christ, our Lord, our Messiah, Jesus Christ, was indeed despised and rejected. Help us, Lord, to understand why. <laughs> And help us to understand that despite being despised and rejected, he indeed still went to the cross, died in the very place of those whose wrath was filled against him, that we might be saved. Help us to understand this saving work now as we walk through your word together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've been with us for very many Advent seasons, you know, one of the things I'll often share about is something I look at each year this time of year. It's a, a price index that PNC Bank puts out. It's, it's the index of the actual cost of the 12 days of Christmas. That song that you sing and you hear somebody uh, sits down each year and figures out how much it would actually cost to buy these gifts. And I always find it interesting, especially when you consider the rising cost of things today. In fact, the, the 12 days of Christmas, when you price out these items, have gone up 10.5% this year. For example, the, the first day, that partridge in a pear tree will now cost you $280. If you're looking for a last-minute Christmas gift, maybe you can find a, a partridge in a pear tree, but it's going to cost you more. Uh, the cost of partridges apparently is unchanged, but... Uh, the trees have gone up, mostly due to high fertilizer costs, which some of you are very familiar with this morning. In fact, those two things cost you about 25% more than they cost you last year if you're growing pear trees and partridges. Uh, the second day, two turtle doves. I know many of you probably have never thought about buying those, but if you want to, uh, that's going to cost you $600 this year. It's gone up 33%, uh, again, due to the cost of rising fees, apparently, Turtle doves cost a lot to eat, so you want to pick those up. The most expensive gift uh, this year changed. Ten lords of leaping overtook seven swans of swimming, and now that'll cost you almost $14,000. Now, I have no idea uh, what a lord of leaping actually is and how you might go about pricing one, but that's what it's going to cost you. And yet again, the most inexpensive gift, which will come as no surprise to some of you, is eight maids of milking. Uh, that's the cheapest thing you can buy because that price hasn't changed since 2009, apparently, and that's why most of you are not made to milk these days. You sit down and look at these things, and it's fun to look at. It, it reminds us that 
Gifts come with a price. That's a reminder you probably don't need. You've probably been sitting down in recent days looking through the price of those gifts. And for the most part, when you look at a gift and look at its price, that tells you its value. But for the most part, these things, that they cost this much because they're worth this much. And so when the, the worth goes up, that the price, of course, goes up. But it's sort of ironic that we spend so much time thinking about prices and value during the time of the year when we celebrate that which God has given us, which is priceless. And he says the price tag on it is free. <laughs> it is the free gift of God that we are reminded of during this season of Advent. This, this free gift that God has given us. And yet, this free gift, it does come with a cost. It was an enormous cost for the Father to give His Son. And friends, it's an enormous cost for us to receive the gift. Because while we don't pay for it with material goods, with money we've earned, with our efforts and our deeds, we, we pay for it by laying down our lives. And Jesus says if we're going to receive this gift He offers us, we, we need to be prepared to, to come and to die. To, to lay aside ourselves. To, to be changed people, to be given a, a new heart, a new life, a new taste, new appetite. It cost us everything to receive this free gift. And when that really sinks in with people, a lot of people don't want to pay that price. Perhaps you're even struggling today, this Lord's Day, with whether or not you're, you're willing to pay that price, to, to lay it all down to receive this free gift. And what you find is that many aren't willing to. So rather than accept this gift, they reject this gift. And it is that very rejection that Luke brings us to in his gospel, this Lord's Day, where we find this section of Scripture where Jesus indeed is rejected, but not just by any random group of people. He, he's rejected by his own. And he's rejected by the people of Nazareth. That the people he grew up with, the people that, that would have known more about his life than anyone else up until that point, they reject him. And to understand why it is they reject him, we need to take a little time to walk through this passage this morning. A passage that I'll tell you that there is a wealth of knowledge in. There, there's so much we could look at in this, but, but I really want to look fundamentally at what we see at the end of the passage, that, that Christ is rejected. And I want us to work our way through the passage looking at perhaps some of the reasons this rejection comes. And so we'll put we'll begin with the first point I put there in your outline. We see that they, these folks in Nazareth, they reject Jesus because he doesn't do mighty works for them. And he doesn't do the things they have heard about him doing. In fact, Luke begins before we get to Nazareth by telling us in verses 14 and 15 about all these works that Christ had done in other places. And how he'd gone throughout all Galilee and he, he'd been ministering. And in this ministry, Luke doesn't really give us details, but we can infer from other gospel accounts, these would have been mighty works of miracles, of healings. Now, if you look at a map, you see that the Galilee is kind of that, that surrounding region that the, the city, the town of Nazareth was in. So the the, the picture here is that Jesus essentially is kind of going around the, the county and surrounding counties and, and he's going to their synagogues and he's, he's preaching, he's proclaiming the kingdom, he's healing people, that the lame can walk, the blind can see, the deaf can hear. 
All these things are taking place and the, the folks back in his hometown perhaps are, are growing a little bit curious, perhaps a little bit anxious that they see Jesus as a rabbi, as a, a teacher. And these teachers would go around and would preach in various synagogues and perhaps they're wondering uh, when he's going to come back home, when they're going to have their, their homecoming for Jesus. And when he comes, they're perhaps wondering, I wonder what kind of mighty things he's going to do for us. I mean, if he's performed these things for those other people way out there, we can't wait to see what he's going to do when he comes home, to his home synagogue, the synagogue that Joseph brought him to when he learned to walk. In the synagogue, he would sit and observe and watch and listen as his father and others would, would worship. That this anticipation has grown because, in essence, Jesus here to them, I think, is sort of a hometown hero. When you think about today, you, you might travel to various towns and communities, and when there's someone famous from that region, usually there's a, a sign when you drive in saying, this is the home of. Uh, my wife grew up in Marshville, North Carolina. Marshville is the home of Randy Travis, and for most of his life, they were proud of that. And so there was a, a sign when you drove into Marshville, said Marshville, welcome to Marshville, home of Randy Travis. I grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina. I went to Laney High School. That's where Michael Jordan went to high school. We have sections of the interstate in Wilmington that are named after Michael Jordan. Towns like that, that they like to say that this is who's from here. We're, we're important because that person's important. And so you almost picture coming into Galilee that, that they would have had an indication there. Home of Jesus. The rabbi, the, the great teacher, the miracle worker. And now they've built up this expectation and now that Jesus has come. And you'll notice Luke tells us what he does when he comes. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. He's reminding us this is his hometown. And as was his custom, note that, as was his custom, meaning this was his habit, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now a couple things about that. One we could spend a whole lot of time on, but the point's obvious. Luke tells us here, it was Jesus' habit, it was his custom, to gather with God's people on the Sabbath to worship. Seems like a good idea if Jesus did it. <laughs> to gather, he would gather. You, you, I mean, I think about that, and it's baffling, that, that Jesus, the, the Son of God, God in flesh, would go and sit through probably some pretty bad preaching. <laughs> You know, maybe when they'd stand up to read the Psalms, that wasn't his favorite psalm. I don't know. But here Jesus had the regular habit every Sabbath. He was there with God's people. And while he was there, well, history tells us what would take place in the synagogue on the Sabbath. That there was an order of service that was regular. It would begin with the people gathering together and they would sing from the Psalms, usually somewhere between Psalm 145 and 150. They then together would recite the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And then there were 18 benedictions that they would read aloud in succession. After that came the reading of scripture where one of the, the officers there would come and would take the scroll to whoever was going to read from the scroll that day. Perhaps multiple people would get up and would read from God's word. And then there would be a reading from the prophets. 
And they would take the scroll, for example, the scroll of Isaiah, they would read, and then there would be a, a sermon. They would stand for the, the reading of the scripture, but then whoever was going to be expositing from the scripture that day, uh, they would sit down. I thought that's interesting. The Lord allows me to be here another 20, 30 years. Maybe we'll start that here at Bloomfield. Have a little seat up here, won't you? So when you work out all that, you recognize that Jesus was a part of this order of worship. He takes the scroll, he reads from it, he sits down. Why? Because he's going to preach. But the service didn't end there. After the, the preaching was done, the sermon was followed by the Aaronic benediction from Numbers chapter 6, and that was done with a series of amens. And so uh, the preacher or somebody else would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. Congregation would say amen. The Lord make his face shine upon you. They would say amen. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. They would say amen. And then the service would conclude. And you could go to any synagogue in the land, and that was deemed to be the order of worship. And so it's during this time then that, that Jesus takes the scroll when it's handed to him that the hometown boys come home. Now he's going to preach for his people. He, he reads from Isaiah. And then Luke tells us he rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. He, he sits down. And now he's going to preach. Now Luke doesn't give us the whole sermon that Jesus preaches. He essentially gives us the main point of the sermon Jesus preaches. He gives us one sentence of what Jesus preaches. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, just consider again, Jesus here, fully God and fully man, as he is unrolling the scroll, as he is reading from Isaiah, he understands fully what Isaiah was speaking of. He knows fully how to exposit the word. In fact, not only that, he knows what every person there is thinking about while he is reading from Isaiah. Now, we see this multiple times in the ministry of Christ where not because someone is speaking out loud to him, but, but he knows what they're murmuring. He knows even what they're thinking. Oftentimes he'll respond to the very thoughts that they have. I think that's in part what we're seeing here. Is a response to what's going on in their minds. Jesus was able to know what was going in their minds. I'm, I'm very thankful that I don't know what's going through your minds when I'm preaching. That, that's a scary thought. I'm thankful you don't know what's going through my mind while I'm preaching. But, but Jesus... Obviously, fully God, fully man, he, he could do this. And as he's preaching, as he's reading this, I, I think you see kind of a, a mixed response that's going on here because on one hand, they're, they're marveling at what he's saying. He, he's, he's a great preacher. We would expect that. He's Jesus. But at the same time, it seems that while he is preaching, there's this, this expectation they're having that kind of goes beyond his preaching. In fact, maybe they're even thinking to themselves, I wonder when he's going to stop talking and start doing. I wonder when he's going to wrap this sermon up and start doing some of those mighty works we've been hearing about. I wonder what he's going to do. I wonder who he's going to heal. I wonder what miracles he's going to perform. And if he did this over in that neighboring community, you know those folks. Well, imagine what he's going to do here. And I think Jesus, in perceiving this, he responds to it. This is why, in verse 23, Luke tells us that Jesus says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard, we did at Capernaum, do here in the hometown as well. Now, this was a, a common proverb in Jesus' day. Among the, the medical community, doctors that would come into communities, it was a common expression for them to say, doctor, heal yourself. It was essentially them saying, 
Well, if you can really do the things you say you can do, show it. Show me. Prove it. Prove you can do what you say you can do. Essentially, Jesus, as he is speaking from Isaiah to the people, their expectation is that he's going to start doing these things he's reading about. He's going to bring sight to the blind. He's going to bring healing. He's going to do these things. Do it now. Show it. And in fact, I think when you expound this a little more, what they're likely thinking even is if you really want us to believe you're who you say you are, then you need to perform. <laughs> you need to do something. Do you want our faith? Show us your works. And then maybe we'll believe you're more than the son of a carpenter. Isn't that who he is? I mean, isn't this Joseph's son? And so all these thoughts, all these things they're saying, it's, it's a mixture of, of doubts. It's a mixture of really a challenge to Jesus. If you're who you say you are, do these things for us. It is everything other than truly worshiping God and trusting in the fulfillment of his word. In fact, as they do this, and as Jesus says to them, doubtless this is what you're going to say to me, we find that Jesus doesn't perform for them at all. In fact, the other gospel accounts tell us that compared to all the other places he went and what he did there, he essentially does relatively none of those mighty works here. There's just a few that are done in his own hometown. Why? Because his people here rejected him. He didn't do what they thought he was going to do. He didn't perform in the way he thought they thought he was going to perform, so they just rejected him. Friends, we are still doing this today, aren't we? You think of how often we, we are tempted to lay down a challenge before God. You think of how often you might even hear someone say, well, yeah, yeah, I used to go to church. I used to believe like you did, but then my child got sick. And God didn't heal him. And I did everything I was supposed to do. And I had faith. And I prayed. And I went to church. And I gave. And you know what I got out of that? Nothing. God wasn't there for me when I needed him most. So I don't want anything to do with that guy. Not all that different than what we see in Nazareth. Here in this passage, is it? We, we put this challenge before God. God, if you want me to believe, if you want me to have faith, then you need to do this for me. And when God doesn't do this for me or for you, we reject him as well. And you think about the number of people that perhaps at one time were faithfully sitting beside you or me in these pews here at our church until they had marriage trouble, trouble with their kids, financial trouble. Until they suffered, until the cancer came, until the loved one died. And now they're angry and they're bitter. And they want nothing to do with the God who worship. Why? Because he didn't perform the way they wanted to. Friends, we're not careful. We'll go down that same path. We'll find ourselves sitting in that synagogue with people in Jesus' day in his hometown looking at him just saying, Show me. Prove it. And then I'll he had nothing to do with that, and therefore they didn't. They rejected him, not just for that reason. Point two, we see here they reject Jesus because they didn't think his words applied to them. 
But notice again what he says when he reads from the scripture, reads from Isaiah, verse 18, Luke tells us the passage he goes to. It's actually a combination of passages from the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus opens up the scroll and he reads these sections from Isaiah that say, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then again, he, part of his sermon, he makes that statement, that this scripture has been fulfilled right now in your hearing. And again, the, the people, they, they marvel at what he's saying. They marvel at his sermon. They spoke well of him. They marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But the issue was this. They were marveling because I think they thought this was good news for other people. Well, this is good news for those poor people out there. Well, this is good news for those blind people out there. I think they're listening to Jesus' sermon and they're rejoicing and they're glorifying because they're hearing what he says and thinking about how it applies to everybody but them. And maybe they're sitting there and they're thinking, well, I'm not blind. This doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not poor. This isn't about me. But, well, this, that's good for the poor. That's good for the blind. What they're failing to recognize is that they were poor and that they were blind and that they were captive and that they were oppressed. Because again, this is how the scripture speaks of unredeemed people. These words come up often in the scripture. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. The scripture tells us there'll be a day when when all the blind people see in a new heaven and a new earth, those who have trusted in Jesus, there'll be a day when there's no more poverty and no more oppression. But we're not that day yet. And so we see there's there's a, a double intention here in the word. This isn't just speaking about physical blindness and material poverty. This is speaking, I believe, about something even deeper. For example, Mark chapter 8, Jesus says clearly, we're all poor. We're spiritually impoverished. We can have all the money in the world, but if we don't have Christ, we have nothing. Jesus says it this way, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? But what can a man give in return for his soul? Friends, you're not going to stand before God one day and look at your bank account. He's not going to ask you if you invested in Bitcoin. He's not going to ask you what your return was on your 401k or your IRA. You, you can have all of that and have nothing. You can be the wealthiest person in the world and be spiritually bankrupt. See it all the time. They didn't realize their, their own poverty. They didn't realize their own captivation. John 8, 34, Jesus said, we're all captive to sin. We're all slaves to sin. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You hear that this morning, or maybe you think, well, I'm not a slave to anything. Great. Stop sinning. You're not a slave to it. You're free to do what you want. Well, then stop. Just stop right now. Just never sin again. You want to take that bet and do it? 
No, because you can't. The scripture says we are born enslaved to sin. It is our very nature. Nobody teaches us how to do it. It's not a learned behavior. We come out of the womb ready to rebel. And as soon as we can speak, we speak rebellion. Baby's first words might be mama or dada, but real soon after that is no. And you hear it all. You don't teach it, do you? I didn't sit down with my kids. You don't sit down with your kids and have a lesson. Now, you're way too obedient. We want to teach you to disobey today. We teach obedience. We teach behavior. Why? Because from the womb, our, our internal nature, our sin nature, the scripture says we're depraved. We, we come out. How? Enslaved to sin. We're, we're the captives that need to be free. This is what Jesus is saying. They don't get it. And if they do, they think it applies to somebody else, not to them. And then being blind? I mean, this morning, you're looking at me. I'm looking at you. I need help to look at you, but I can look at you nonetheless. We don't see ourselves as physically blind, but we are indeed spiritually blind apart from the gospel of Jesus. Paul reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, about our, our spiritual blindness, our inability to see. And so in their pride and their unbelief, the people who were hearing Jesus they thought these words applied to others. They did not recognize they applied to them. And that's the problem here. Because, friends, the good news isn't good news until you realize the bad news first. That the good news of what Jesus offers you and I, this free gift of God, this salvation in Christ, it's not really good news to us until we realize our true, depraved, wicked, lost condition. The good news isn't good news until we realize what bad news the bad news is. And friends, the bad news is bad news. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So you want to you put a, a sign on Nazareth, Jesus says? How about a sign that says, welcome to Nazareth. There's nobody good here. Friends, you can put that sign on Bloomfield too. But what's our heart say? It says, well, you know, you really need to put it on other places. Not, not here. You know who really needs to hear this sermon is so-and-so. That's our thought process so often. God's word is directed at you and me this time. Jesus preaching, it was directed at the people of Nazareth, and I don't think they recognize it that way any more than many of us don't recognize it day after day. We think it's for somebody else because we think we're far better than we are. We don't realize how bad the bad news is. Therefore, we never truly respond to the good news. And so we reject the gift because we don't think we need it. I think that's what we see here, but not just for that reason. Number three, they reject Jesus because his words offended them. Augustine once wrote it this way, they love the truth when it enlightens them, but they hate the truth when it accuses them. Friends, that's true for every one of us this morning. We, we like being uplifted. We like to be enlightened. We, we like that, that feel-good feeling when we come to certain passages and 
and we just get real excited about them. We, we like those things. We like the truth when it enlightens us. Not as much when it accuses us. And make no mistake about it, Jesus here in his preaching in the synagogue, he is accusing. Now he does it by sharing two familiar Old Testament accounts with him and friends, we can spend an entire sermon on each of these. In fact, we will uh, not long from now, meaning in the next 10 years, we'll walk through first and second Kings together and we're going to go through each of these accounts and there will be sermons preached on them. But if you're not familiar with them, the, the, the gist of this is that what Jesus does here is he, he pulls from two familiar Old Testament accounts involving uh, two of the most revered prophets from the Old Testament to God's people, Elijah and Elisha. And in both of these accounts, he essentially talks about how in their day, in these accounts, they went outside the people of Israel when there was a need, and they chose instead to go to a Gentile in order to bless them. In fact, he says in each situation, these, these Gentiles, Naaman the Syrian, this, this widow from Zarephath, in each of these situations, neither of them says, show me and then I'll believe. In both situations, they're giving a command, and what they end up doing is obeying that command, and then God brings to them the miracle. The widow and her son are ready to die. It's, Jesus even reminds us here, three and a half years of famine, they have nothing but enough to make one little meal to be their last, and then they're going to die. It's a hopeless situation. Elijah says, make me a meal first. <laughs> and they do. She does. And then the food never runs out. God miraculously, abundantly provides. But he does it after, not before. Same true with Naaman, this Gentile official. He's covered in leprosy. He, he thinks he'll get some type of special treatment because of his position. He soon realizes he won't, and so he's given a command to go and to, to bathe ritually in a special way. He, he does that, and then he cleanses. He, he, he first has to have faith. He first has to believe, and, and then the miracle comes. And so when Jesus tells these stories, I believe he's making multiple points, but all of them end up offending his hearers. <laughs> and he's making a point about belief and faith in light of these miraculous works these people are looking for, and so he's basically saying, I'm not going to show you anything. You've been shown everything you need to see. Now you need to believe. And they don't. And he's also speaking here to who? To, to Israelites. God's people. Who, who, who saw themselves as favored by God. And he's reminding them of salvation history throughout the Old Testament where God brings salvation to the Gentile and sometimes does that before Israel. He's reminding them that during times when the Israelites struggled with belief and faith, how God went and blessed those outside. He's basically saying, that's what I'm doing as well. And this enraged who thought they were so special, who thought they were favored. Essentially, what Jesus says to them is that the, the, the Gentile, who they would have viewed as just someone deserving of God's wrath, someone outside the family of faith, lower than the lowest of the lowest. 
And what is Jesus saying? They're a whole lot better off than you are. Because you have the good news in front of you and you're rejecting it. He'll say this later to others in this way. Woe to you. For the judgment is coming. And they've heard enough. Again, historically, we know that after the sermon, uh, there would have been a blessing. There would have been a, a, a reciting of amens back and forth. They cut sermon short. <laughs> they don't wait for the sermon to end. They take Jesus out. They are done with him. And they are ready to take him to the hillside and to throw him off. How angry they are. How offended they were. Because in this moment, they, they see Jesus as a false teacher. In the Old Testament, this is what you did with a, a false teacher. They failed to see what they had in front of them was indeed disciples. And so, verse 28, when they heard these things, all the synagogues filled with wrath, they rose up they drove him out of town. They brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. And you might hear that and think, well, that, that just seems a little extreme. And if they didn't like his preaching, they'd go to another synagogue. Find somebody that tickled their ears. Not that we would do that today. But. Now, they were very much doing what the scripture says we all still do. Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And friends, we are too. That hostility leads them to the edge of the cliff to throw Jesus over. And that same hostility is in our heart today. It may not be that we're going to throw someone off the cliff. I sure hope you don't do that with me today. But we reject God in all kinds of ways, don't we? Our passive indifference, our obstinate rebellions. Yeah, I, I can see where that verse that applies to others, but you don't know my situation. We make exceptions for our sin. We pretend we're okay. That's rejection and rebellion. We love the truth when it enlightens us, and we hate it when it ignores. So here they take Jesus to the hillside, but friends, we're reminded that it wasn't Jesus' time to be taken to a hillside, was it? But that time would come. <laughs> when not because of the plans alone of an angry mob, but because of the preordained plan of a loving God. Jesus would later go to a different hillside, and this time he wouldn't just walk through the crowd and be saved. He would go willingly to the cross and be slain. He would be despised and rejected so that you and I might be loved and accepted. This is the good news of the gospel. That, that our Lord Jesus, all while being hated, rejected, despised and outcast, that he obeyed the Father's will perfectly. And that will was for him to go to the cross, to die the death that you and I deserve. Why? So that he might have life. So that in our rejection and rebellion, there might be a glimmer of hope for us in the gospel. And friends, this is what the gospel says. 
that God to our darkness brings light and to all our wrongs he brings light. And in the end he makes all things right. And what we're reminded of in this Advent season is of that very truth. We light these candles each Lord's Day during Advent because Jesus indeed is the light of the world and he is coming to your darkness and into mine. The question is, will you accept the light or will you reject it? We're going to sing a song this morning that tells us what it looks like to accept it. It says this, I once was lost in the darkest night and thought I knew the way the sin that promised joy in life and it led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will and if you had not loved me first I would refuse you still. But as you and I ran our hellbound race indifferent to the cost God looked upon our helpless state and led us to the cross. Where we behold God's love displayed and suffer in our place. For the wrath reserved for me, for you, so that now all we know is grace. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is our God. Friend, if that is your song, 